Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. I mean, I don't know if there is or not. I don't know. I, I never thought about it. You know, maybe I'm off, but I don't know. Nothing comes to the forefront of my mind. You don't call them sinners? I, I never thought about it, but I probably don't. Give us some men who know the truth and who will declare the truth and who will declare from the housetops that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. And away we go. It's the Wretched Radio mail call delivery bag Q&A infotainment nationwide extravaganza featuring your voicemails, correspondences, communiques, dispatches, memorandums and missives. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? What we need right now is a clear message to the people of this country. You have 1,200 messages. It is a bit above average. Now here's your host, Todd Freakishly Tall Friel. The mail is here! Ooh, uh, this is Wretched Radio, hoping that you'll send pretty much anything wretched to idea at wretched.org. Questions, comments, conundrums, snarks, stories, sermons, articles. If it's wretched, we want it. Idea at wretched.org. We start off with Dila, who asks if the Bible has anything to say about yes. <laughs> if the Bible has anything to say about genetic engineering and implanted pig hearts. Yes, it does. It doesn't use those words. But if we believe that the Bible is sufficient for all of life and godliness, all we need to do is not use our concordance, perhaps, to look for genetic engineering or transhumanism, but we can get an understanding of the subject and then apply the general information from the Bible to the specifics. I would start in Genesis chapter 2. Who was created last and why? Humans, because we're, we're the best. We are the jewel at the top of the crown of God's creation. We are the best of the best. What are animals? They're here for us. They are here to serve us. We are here to subdue them. We treat our animals well. That's what a godly man does. A wicked, cruel man abuses animals. Nevertheless, we recognize they are here to perform services and tasks for people. The animals sit in service to us. Now, that thought alone leads me down the path of going, okay, I can even take the life of an animal if it serves humans and it's and it's a, a reasonable exchange. I, I think we can accept that. Is that enough to tell me what I should do about implanted pig hearts? Um, yeah, actually, I, I, I think it is. We understand two things from Genesis 2. Animals are here to serve us, and yet we are distinct. We aren't animals. Despite what so many people increasingly say these days, we're not dogs. We're not equals. We're not sharing the planet. Human beings rule the planet. They submit to us. Those two thoughts, I think, answer Dila's two questions. First of all, the Bible does speak on it, but what do we do about genetic engineering and pig heart implants, which are actually happening? I think there are two different things. Genetic engineering is manipulating DNA to try to create a specific type of person, somebody who can play piano, they're good at math, sports, what have you. That's manipulating DNA. Now, 
that's a separate conversation to a degree. Manipulating DNA can actually be a massive blessing to people because a lot of good work by good Christian people is being done right now to better understand DNA, to take it out of a person and re-put it, re-put it back in. Wow, that was redundant. And replace it. That's the singular word that I'm looking for in order to heal them. That's excellent. Why? Because it serves us and it doesn't confuse animals and humans. We're different. And that then leads us to pig hearts. Can a human put an animal body part in to their chest? And I think the answer is, and you can most certainly disagree, I think it's okay. I actually do think it's okay. Why? Because animals are here to serve us, and by putting a pig heart into a human doesn't make you a bovine, doesn't alter you, doesn't change you. Furthermore, I might just remind you that we already do this, and we usually don't have much of a problem with it, that we do bovine implants. We, we, we'll do implants. Oral surgery uses this regularly. We see skin grafts for people who are severely burned. They will use animal skin. I think it's pig, actually, as a temporary covering. Even if it became permanent, I would say it doesn't alter a human being. Medicines are made from animal byproducts, and we're putting those into our body. So should a human need a heart and the only one that is available goes oink oink i don't think that it should be a moral conundrum anything that alters who you are tries to make a superhuman by combining animals and humans that would be a no-go please send emails to idea at wretched.org okay this one comes you're not gonna you're not gonna disagree with me well i I don't disagree with that it might be okay. I just, I guess I'm not scientific-y enough to know if it'll actually work. Apparently it does. Yeah, maybe it does. I, and to that I say, great. If a pig can allow a human to live, humans are better. They're way more valued. Hmm. So I, I, I don't see the moral conundrum. But if anybody disagrees, you can send it to idea at wretched. Org. Okay, this one comes from Wesley. What does the Bible teach about baptism and membership being required to partake in communion? That's, I think, an, that is a rule that a church, I think, has the right to make, and it shouldn't cause you to think that they are outside of orthodoxy or apostate. I get it. I truly do. I'm a big fan of of making the front door of a church narrower and the back door wider. Now, that doesn't mean we go looking for people to kick them out through church discipline, but we should be exercising church discipline and very quick to identify an ongoing sin, not the one-off business, but an ongoing sin to say, hey, friend, are you dealing with this? And if they're not, because we love them, to pursue them with another and then to pursue them before the whole body, because we want them to beat their sin and to not live in rebellion to God. If they persist in rebellion, then out the back door they go because we love them, hoping that they will enter through the narrow door rightly this time. And I think that front door for a church, I'm, I'm not foreclosed 
communion. I am for close communion that you do need to have people that profess faith in Jesus Christ. They must have a testimony that is credible in order to take communion. But what about membership? Do you have to be baptized first? Well, do you have to? I don't know that I would be willing to go that far. Should you? I believe you should. I believe you should get baptized before you start taking communion. Why? It's the first command of Jesus. You get saved, you get baptized. That's the pattern that we see in the book of Acts. Salvation, water, faith, dunking. Immediately. What's going to keep us from you doing this right now? It's the first command of our Savior, and I think we should obey that before we start practicing communion because we would not want to eat and drink it to our own destruction. Why? Because if you're living in unrepentant sin, then those verses in 1 Corinthians 11 could apply to you. Now, Does that mean that somebody who isn't baptized is living in willful, unrepentant sin? Um, Probably not willful, but I think it's something that should be dealt with. We've lost urgency with commanding baptism. It's a command. As much as any other command in the Bible, we're commanded to get dunked. Immersed, I would dare say. And, And if somebody's not willing to do it, then I think the brothers and sisters who surround that person should say, Sub, why? Why won't you do this? Now, can that person go, you know what? I have no excuse. I didn't realize it was an imperative. I'm going to get on it. But it's three weeks till the baptism. I wouldn't say they're living in sin. It's just time needs to take place for events to happen. But I do believe we should be more urgent about the issue of baptism. And Perhaps, and again, each church can make their own decision on this, withhold communion until you obey the other command. There's two ordinances of the church, Lord's table and baptism. You shouldn't do one without the other. What about church membership? I I don't know that I would say that church membership is required for communion. I'm a close communion guy, not closed. Closed what, what this letter indicates is that that's a closed table. You've got to be in this fellowship. You've got to be in good standing with us in order to partake of the table. I believe that an individual, whatever church they attend, if they're in a particular building and they're not living in willful unrepentant sin and they're in good standing with the church, should be welcomed at the Lord's table because we're one even though we don't all go to the same exact church. Might I encourage you? If you haven't been baptized and you're born again, you love the Lord, you've repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ, don't delay. Get baptized. Do it today if possible. Call your pastor. When can we get this done? And be urgent about the first command of our Savior. And send your emails to idea at wretched.org and we will continue reading the mailbag next on Wretched Radio. So there you are on your Googler machine trying to find a restaurant. What do you look for? Ratings and reviews. If it gets lots of stars, positive reviews, chances are pretty good you're going to go there. Question, would you be inclined to go to a restaurant that had a 98% approval rating and rave reviews? I suspect you would. MetaShare? 
Affordable Biblical Health Sharing has a 98% approval rating, 400,000 members strong sharing one another's health care bills, saving billions of dollars over the years, saving families on average $500 a month, and 98% of the members of MediShare, give it a hearty thumbs up. I encourage you to call them and see if MediShare is right for you and your family. 1-844-34-BIBLE. 1-844-34-BIBLE for MediShare. Calling all hands and feet, we need you again. Over the years, you have partnered with us to distribute over one million copies of The Biggest Question and another million copies of What Time is Purple? Well, now we need you again. We know you have it in you to help distribute one million copies of our newest booklet, Solving the God Puzzle. Solving the God Puzzle helps answer the doubts people have on the existence of God. A lot of what we encounter today is mere hopelessness, and helping people to tackle this issue is of the utmost importance, because eternity is at stake here. That's why we want you to partner with us in getting this booklet into as many hands as possible. We will send you as many copies of solving the God puzzle as you promise to give away free. And we'll even cover the shipping if you request more than a case. All of the details and your copies of Solving the God Puzzle right now at wretched.org slash puzzle. That's wretched.org slash puzzle. And now a message from our dear brother Paul Marty of the Tomorrow Club's Kids Bible Clubs all throughout Eastern Europe. Just in case it isn't difficult enough to do ministry in poor Eastern Europe. 2020 has been a challenging year for all of us and especially hard for the vulnerable kids and families that Tomorrow Club serve. But support from the Wretched Audience has enabled us to continue to bring a message of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the forsaken places we serve. Thank you so much. If you are a Tomorrow Club supporter, I echo his gratitude. If you are not, would you please consider becoming a Tomorrow Club supporter? You can sponsor your own kids club in Eastern Europe so efficiently. Just $30 per month to disciple 30 kids. Learn more at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Know your church fathers. Ambrose was the Bishop of Milan in the 4th century and one of the four original doctors of the church. He defeated Arianism by appealing to scripture and using well-reasoned arguments. Ambrose reminds us that a faithful teacher is a blessing to generations of Christians. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Please send your questions, comments, conundrums, snarks, or complaints during the break. <laughs> To idea at wretched.org. This is Wretched Radio. All right, Jimmy, you've got an issue, which is self-evident. But in this instance, your issue is what specifically? I just wanted some more clarification. You mentioned that um, the um, table is not closed, but close, or it should be. And, uh, you know, if someone comes in to visit and we're, we're doing communion that day and they want to partake, how, how's the pastor to note? that that person is a member in a yeah. good standing with the church. You know, it's that's I, I think there's a couple of practical ways to handle that. One is a little bit more difficult. The other one, I think, is more practical and used 
regularly. But if I might, before I offer those two ways of protecting the table, let's remember what protecting the table is about. Two things. Number one, protecting the table. You don't want people taking communion who are not in fellowship with the Lord or they're out of fellowship with a local body or they're living in unrepentant sin because that is to blaspheme and to really, if you will, just desecrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Second, we protect the table to protect people. 1 Corinthians 11 is a scary verse when it is talking about communion on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Paul encourages people to take it in a worthy manner. Not that you're perfect, but the criteria that I think are baked into 1 Corinthians 11, you're not living in unrepentant sin. You are actually born again, and you are not at war with any member of the body. That is, Those are the qualifications for taking it worthily. If you don't, that is why some of you are weak, sick, and even dead. In other words, Communion might be the device that God uses to chasten a person, and we don't want them getting chastened. We want to counsel them, encourage them, grow them so that they don't get weak, sick, or even die. That's the motive behind protecting the table. Our attitude shouldn't be, our church has been in this town for 150 years. We've got legacy money here and stained glass windows, and we're not going to let strangers come in. That's not even remotely close to what the motivation is. Like excommunication or church discipline, it, it's done lovingly. We want the table protected, and we want people protected. Having said that, how could a pastor do that when it comes to guests and visitors? I believe that I've never seen anybody do this. But you could give people who are visiting at the door, wherever they enter via the greeter, an announcement that we are celebrating the Lord's table today. If you are a visitor and you wish to partake, please see the pastor or one of the elders. They will be available at this time. If you missed it, sorry, that that would be a possibility. I think the other one that I've actually seen, experienced, and I think is more practical, and does it rely on trusting people yeah but doesn't it always the pastor before he institutes the elements he can just make an announcement the lord's table is for believers if you're here today and you're a believer we're glad you're here but the lord's table is also for believers who are not living in unrepentant sin furthermore the lord's table is for believers not living in unrepentant sin who are at peace with the body so if you have some sort of argument going on right now with somebody in the body of christ we would ask you to abstain so you don't get weak sick or even die but if you meet those aforementioned criteria we welcome you to the lord's table and then he has protected the table he has put it on the person to protect themselves and I think then we keep the Lord's table, for lack of a better word, pure. What do you think of them apples, Jimmy? I dig it. Really? Yeah, I do. I don't disagree with you. I just have you not have you not seen pastors do that before? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. I just think that that's. I'm thinking about John Calvin, when the Libertines they wanted to partake of the Lord's table, and they were they were not good dudes. <laughs> Scrawny John Calvin. I just I can I always see the same image in my brain. Skinny, pointy bearded John Calvin 
or was he the rounded beard? I always get those two confused. Is it Knox with the pointy? Knox had the pointy beard. Knox had the pointy beard. That's, you know how you should remember that? Because it, it, it comes to a sharp point, like a sword or a spear. And John Knox was a bit of a fighter. Yeah. So that's there's my mnemonic or whatever. And then John Calvin had the more rounded beard, but he was a, he was kind of a sickly man, skinny fellow. And in they came. The, the, the Libertines came into the church, and they were going to take the elements. John Calvin fell on the table to cover them. I can't recall his exact words, but it was basically something like, you're going to have to cut me in half to get to them before I let you partake of the Lord's table. We should have a similar attitude, whether you have got a rounded or pointy beard, which if you're a conservative pastor these days, apparently you have to have that. We should be protecting the table out of love for the table and for people. Please send your emails to idea at wretched.org. What? What was that? You can't see it. I, I, yeah. He has a, I looked him up. Calvin has a pointy beard. Wait a second. So now my little thing doesn't work. <laughs> no, no. Okay, great. Well, so I, the pointy beard was Calvin, the rounded beard. I didn't look up Knox yet. See, this this is the problem. I don't know if you remember that when you used to have to take a test. You know, the, the answer was Pennsylvania. All right. Um, they want to know which state has the most peaches. Peaches, Pennsylvania. That's it's Pennsylvania. And you remember it that way, which is dumb, because then you're not really remembering it. And then you have to remember the mnemonic device to remember it. So why not just remember what you're supposed to remember? <laughs> and this retention just doesn't exist when you do it that way. So I, what I'll have to do, Jimmy. Well, well, they both have a pointy beard. Is No. Yes. Not according to the tie that I was given. It's got four reformers on it. One is kind of a balding fellow. No. I don't think he had facial hair. Well, no. I, mean, it, I guess it depends on what picture you look at. But then there's the pointy beard. There's the rounded beard. And then there was Martin Luther on the tie. So I don't think ties lie. <laughs> no, that's truth. Or I'm going to have to go, okay, the pointy beard is like a spear. And John Knox was was kind of bellicose in some regards. Right. But that's it, not related to the pointy beard. So the pointy beard goes to John Calvin. Yeah. Shoot me! <laughs> Somebody just shoot me! Please send your emails to ideawretched.org. Okay, on to something else. Uh, from uh, This is from Michael. Is it possible for angels to rebel against God this day and age, or was the original rebellion the last time? That is an interesting question. Let me tackle one that you probably have asked. Will you be able to sin in heaven? And let me just emphatically shout, not a chance. No, because Jesus saves, Jesus keeps. Nobody can snatch you from the Father's hand, even in eternity. You're not going anywhere, so don't worry. You're not going to be the one to wreck it. You're not going to be the one to sin. You're not going to be the one to lapse back into that besetting sin you were at war with while you were on the planet. You are going to be kept for eternity, so don't let that concern you. But what about the angels? I can't think of a verse that suggests they can either be sinning in the future or the present, or that that's impossible for them now. So what do we know, though, from the Bible that might point us in the right direction? Well, we need to remember that the angels were created just like everything else was created during the creation week. They had to have been created 
probably day six, but they were created during creation week. And before Adam and Eve sinned, there was a rebellion. Isaiah discusses this. I believe Ezekiel discusses this. And God booted out, most people think, but not everybody agrees, a third of the angels. That's revelation fervor that hints that there was a third of the angels that got booted out of heaven. Whether that number is accurate or not, what we don't see in the Bible from that time, from right after creation, before man fell into sin, we don't see any angels falling or getting booted out of heaven. Furthermore, when I do read the book of Revelation, I see that the angels are alive and well. They continue to serve as ministering spirits. There is no indication that in the new heavens and the new earth that any more had taken a tumble. Yes, this is an argument from silence, but it would be a pretty big deal. It's not going to affect your eternity in any way, shape, or form, but it would be a pretty interesting fact to know that the angels fell or could continue to fall. But I also then would conclude with Revelation. It's not just you who are going to be kept. Heaven is going to be perfect forever in every regard. And I don't think that the angels are simply going to have the ability to besmirch it in any way, shape, or form. So I put all of those thoughts together and conclude, I don't think that they can fall. Would I start a denomination? No. Would I keep you from taking communion if you disagree? Hmm. Just want to make sure you're safe. Because that's what we're all about these days, isn't it? Are you safe? Are you safe in your safeness? I don't want to make a law out of it, but I think it points in the direction we're going to be spending eternity with the Lord and his angels. Please send emails with questions, comments, conundrums, snarks to idea at wretched.org. We are most grateful. This is Wretched Radio. This is Wretched Radio, and I'm Jimmy Hicks. Well, how's this for seemingly more irresponsibility from Loudoun County, Virginia? You know the case of the 15-year-old who sexually assaulted at least two female students in two different Loudoun County schools? Well, the court decision to place him on the sex offender registry recently, it's been revoked. Attorneys for the boy argue that he's actually the victim here. So I guess those who he's been convicted of sexually assaulting aren't victims? I don't really know too much about Loudoun County, Virginia. I really don't, but it does seem like they could use a whole lot of new leadership. And in case you've ever laid awake late at night pondering the existence of God, good news! An atheist group has started a new 24-7 hotline. Really, I would not recommend calling them, but they do promise they will not be prodding every caller toward atheism. Just the ones that don't hang up. Well, get this. In Indiana, most lawmakers recently united over proposed legislation that looks to put a stop to forced and coerced abortions. House Bill 217 will make it a felony in Indiana to coerce a woman into murdering her baby. The bill passed the Indiana House with bipartisan support. That is, of course, except for 18. 18 lawmakers who voted against the bill. I guess for those 18 lawmakers, it's okay to murder babies at all costs, even forcing or coercing women into it. You know, that's actually what they also do in communist China. 
And in another update on abortion laws, this one from Ecuador, the new president of the country, declared this week that he will in fact veto a bill that Congress is currently debating which would regulate abortion in cases of rape. He said, quote, I am determined to veto it, but I cannot tell you now if it will be a total or partial veto. That depends on the final text of the bill. And here's a fun bit of information that I recently learned. Apparently, since 2019, the University of Kansas, a prestigious university in this country, they've offered the class of angry white male studies. Who knew that anger in white males was so prevalent and distinctive that a class that studies it would be beneficial to society? Oh, wait. Silly me, I almost forgot this country is trying to brainwash people with this type of propaganda. So yeah, I guess it does make a little bit more sense now. A former mosque leader turned a Christian in eastern Uganda died earlier this week. He succumbed to the injuries he sustained when Muslim members of his own family beat him in early January. A Christian pastor and a father of four children ages 10, 8, 5, and 2. And though the constitution in Uganda allows for religious freedom, officials typically look the other way when Christians are the ones who are victims of persecution. As we tell you nearly daily here at Wretched, please make sure that you are intentionally and purposefully praying for all of our persecuted brothers and sisters abroad. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Books of the Bible. Exodus is the story of God saving his people from oppression and giving them an identity and an inheritance. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which begin with the statement, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Good deeds have always been a response to God's saving work, not a means of earning salvation. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. You can send questions, comments, conundrums, snarks. Jimmy can just mutter them into my ear during the break. This is Wretched Radio. You never respond to my emails. What's with the (laughs) communion table problem again? I don't have a problem. I just have another question. (sighs) So I get what you're saying about the pastor uh, giving the warning. And, you know, if someone's visiting, let's say you're visiting a church and I'm uh, I'm the pastor, I give the warning. I get what you're saying. But what's wrong with a pastor taking the stance of, hey, you know, you're visiting today. Why would you not want to take communion at your church when you get back next week with your pastor who knows you? Because I don't know you. Well, I think that there's a couple of reasons. Okay. One would be somebody might have the conviction we should be taking communion every week. They, they might believe that this is a regulative principle applied to worship, that communion should be a, a part of the worship service. So they might have that conviction and they want to partake. But the second reason gets us into a subject that we need to be discussing more these days. Just saw a video of Matt Marr. He's a very popular worship leader, and he was sitting in his studio And he was singing a song, and then he started talking about ecumenism and how we really need to have unity. And it was so cool that I write a Roman Catholic worship song, and Chris Tomlin, a Baptist, sings it with 11,000 Baptists. See, that's what we need. That's the unity. No, no, we don't. That's false unity. We have to have the essentials in agreement. There is a push through worship music to be far more ecumenical than the Bible permits 
we must have the essential squared. Otherwise, there is it's false unity. And so many people are giving Matt Marr a pass. They let the kids go to the worship concert. They sing his songs in the church. Oofda. That's a bad form of unity. But to answer the question, why shouldn't a pastor say, just wait till you get to your home church? I think it 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 indicates that the body isn't one, that there isn't a universal church, that there isn't an invisible church, that somehow this building puts us into kind of a well, kind of a clique that we're separate. We're 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 not going to be a part of everybody else. Communion says we're apart together. And so I think that it would kind of betray the message of genuine Christian unity and the definition of what makes for the invisible universal church. There. What do you think of that? Okay, I get it. I I, I get it. <sighs> Can't wait for the next break. <laughs> Email sent to idea at wretched.org. This one comes from Andrew. Has an interesting question. I think he kind of answered it himself, but he's wondering if there is a place where he can look up evangelism laws. Mm. He says he and a friend were recently asked to leave a local farmer's market after being there about 20 minutes because they were on private property. Mm -hmm. And they do want to return, but they're wondering if they can go research evangelism laws somewhere. Well, first of all, let me just say the farmer's market may or may not be on private property. It might be an event. Now, if they were licensed or given permission to be there and that they can control the area, okay, then you should honor that. But you should know, and I'm not telling you to to resist it, but I am saying farmer's markets sometimes are actually on public property. So a little bit gray there. How could you know? Call the po-po. That's right. Call the police, not 911, but whatever the local number is and introduce yourself. Tell them your intention. Are there any laws? If you hear preferences, well, we really don't like people. That's not a law. They need to cite a statute that you would be violating if you go to that place. I do think that there are some general laws that that we can understand and probably guide us through the majority of evangelistic situations. And I think that there's just some good manners that can be practiced. The, ba- the basic, the, the big line is exactly what you were told at the farmer's market. There's private property and public property. Legally, they can kick you. It's their property. Any more than you'd go onto somebody's front lawn and start preaching the gospel, the owner of the home can say, would you please leave my property? And they could enforce it with the police. So I think we honor that. I don't think that it's good or wise to go to do open air preaching in front of Target or Walmart or wherever it is if it's private property. Let's go into the university context. It depends on if it's a private school or a public school. Please note, even a private school can be a public school, meaning you have rights to it because tax dollars are going to that university. That's a bit more of a complicated conversation to have with a police officer or the administration at the Christian school, but that's the law. On a public university, you have every right to be there. You don't need to be in that zone. Freedom of speech allows you to go anywhere. So that is the the, the law and the rule. Having said that, while I think, I'm not certain, but I think you could have the legal right to go into the buildings, I don't think you should. It just would be, they, they could probably tag you on disruption. 
Hey, the kids here, they're to study. This is what they came to do, because those are, by the way, the two rules on the university campus when you're out on the sidewalks or whatever the square is, that you can't keep the kids from doing their schoolwork. So you can't be yelling with a bullhorn underneath a a window where a, a class is being taught. Furthermore, you can't impede somebody from getting from point A to point B. Those are the rules we can live with. What about the manners? I think that we do well to have some manners. The setting that I always think of is the is the big restaurant that has the outdoor patio. And it's a beautiful day, and there's like 100 people sitting in there. Man, I could go preach the gospel to them. Well, you can because you're on the public sidewalk, and you're just yelling into the private property. You can But how would you feel if you were out to dinner? Who knows what sort of a conversation you might be engaged in, what emotional issue is being thrown out on the table, and a Buddhist gets up there to do open-air preaching. It's not likely I grant you that, but how would you be like, could you please, uh, we're trying to... eh." So I think manners should be considered. I think understanding the basic laws, and if you want specifics, simply call your local police, for whom we are grateful and send your emails to idea at wretched.org. All right, Marcus has a question. It says, Todd, Scripture says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're also born in sin and shaped in iniquity. How do I reconcile that? Uh, Romans 5. <laughs> God, God made you. He, he, didn't, he didn't put sin in you. That's all you. That's 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 on the human being. That's the human responsibility aspect of evil and sin. It's on us. But that does not change the fact that you are custom made by God himself. Your personality, your preferences, your skills, whether you can sing or not. He didn't give me that gift. He knits you together, but he is not the one who is responsible for sin. That falls totally on us. Please send emails to idea at wretched. Okay, this one comes from... But if you wanted to actually go into like a really deep conversation about you being knit together in your mother's womb, you've got a soul. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Did it always exist or did God create it? Wait a second, he was done with the creation week. but So can he keep creating And when he said it's all done and it's really good? This is this is the debate between traducianism and creationism. If you want to have yourself a zesty dinner conversation, this would fill the bill. Please send emails to idea at wretched.org. This one comes from Anonymous, who asks, and I think I remember somebody famous making this comment recently. But he says, Todd, how, how do we respond when a person says they do not have any sin and are not ready to accept that they do? Mm. I got to tell you, I'm rubbing my temples because I know what those conversations sound like. We were just in Greenville. That's right, Greenville, which that's how you pronounce it. It's I know it has an I, but it's an all. And I actually had to correct a Southerner the other day who said Greenville. I said, I'm sorry, it's Greenville. Look at what's happened to me. It's 15 years below the Mason-Dixon, and now I'm defending the Southern language. We were there, and just walking down the street, Mrs. Friel and I, we were there for the sermon audio, the Foundations Conference, in December. And the young man who was there with another young man and a young lady, they were out, I believe, doing evangelism down the street. There's a place in Greenville where you can do that. There's a little public square where where people do that. They preach, they'll play their instruments, ask for money, etc., 
and, and, and the fellow stopped me and said, hey, really love that you go out in the streets and witness to people. But I, I, I don't like that, that, that you talk about, you know, that Christians can still sin. Hold the phone, Henrietta. Of course, Christians can still sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. This was a fellow who most likely comes from perhaps a Wesleyan background, a perfectionism theology that I don't think is biblical that says Christians don't sin anymore. How do you deal with a person like this? Well, you've got an option. You can engage in a conversation or you can get into a three-point stance in front of a brick wall and fire your head right into it because that's how the conversation is going to go. One of the, I'm sorry, it just depends on your patience. But keep engaging them because if you do, eventually you're going to actually see them sin because they get angry. <laughs> I would simply drop First John 2 on them and leave it up to the Holy Spirit to persuade somebody that Christians, sadly, can still sin. Simul justus et peccator. This is Wretched Radio. It's New Year's resolution time. But before you make yours, I have a different type of challenge for you. How about instead of resolving to be a better person this year, you instead commit to leaving a legacy for Christ. And one surefire way you can do just that is by becoming a monthly Wretched Gospel partner. Currently, Wretched Radio and TV is seen and heard on nearly 1,000 stations combined worldwide. The second season of Road Trip to Truth has just been released with season three in production, solving the God puzzle on its way to one million copies distributed and transformed our latest TV series highlighting biblical counseling is set to debut later this year. We're striving to reach people all over the world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're only able to do that with the support of our gospel partners. So would you prayerfully consider joining us? Just log on to wretched.org slash donate to get all of the details. Wretched.org slash donate. Permit me to introduce you to Brie and Salvation Dominoes Preborn Style. When one person gets saved, they have that burning desire to just make him known the same way that was made known to them. And then it's just this domino effect. Brie currently volunteers at a preborn life center. How did she get saved? From a friend whose mother got saved at, you guessed it, a preborn life center. Why? Because preborn, it is indeed about saving babies' lives via $28 ultrasounds, but it is also sharing the gospel so that moms and dads get saved. And look at the domino effect. Would you please consider supporting preborn centers with as many free ultrasounds as you can? $28 for an ultrasound, 80% of the time saves a life. Learn more at preborn.org slash wretched. Thank you for listening to Wretched Radio today. Well, what do the gospel, environmentalism, sexuality, agnosticism, and social Darwinism all have in common? They're among the 13 topics covered in Season 2 of Road Trip to Truth. With experts like Pastor Milton Vincent, Scott Klusendorf, Jess Arms, Dr. Jason Lyle, and Tom Hammond, among others, Season 2 of Road Trip to Truth will equip you and your kids to defend the Christian faith at school and work at the gas station, grocery store, and everywhere in between. 
Halloween. Road Trip is also a perfect study to do with others in Sunday school, youth groups, small groups, wherever. Just remember to grab the study guide too when picking up your copy of Season 2 of Road Trip to Truth. And it's all because of the efforts of our gospel partners that resources like Road Trip to Truth are able to be produced. Would you also prayerfully consider becoming a monthly ongoing gospel partner? Just visit wretched.org slash donate to find out all the information you may ever need at becoming a gospel partner. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. Attributes of God The Bible tells us of God's goodness. God does not measure up to an external standard of goodness. He is the standard. Because everything God does is by definition good, we can trust that God will do what is right in every situation. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. be the number of the old toll-free here at Wretched Radio. Uh, please call, leave a message, try to keep it pithy. Questions, comments, conundrums, snarks, or of course, church signs, one 282 beep which we will get to unless, of course, Jimmy has another communion question. Yeah, just a second. <laughs> yeah, you'll work on one. one 282 Church signs, Jesus is God's selfie. Oh, well, you know, that just, that just brutalizes Colossians 1, doesn't it? (laughs) Jesus Christ is the physical image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God is like? Study Jesus. Read his words. See how he behaved. See how he did indeed have stern words for people who were false teachers. See how he tenderly loved the little children. See how he restored a sinner to ministry. You want to know what God is like? Study Jesus. To suggest, however, that he is God's selfie, which I'm not even sure that makes sense, to be perfectly honest. But it just... Can we stop using current cultural references to make God seem like gettable? I was thinking about this the other day, because sometimes I do, was thinking about the New Testament and the level of Greek that was used to communicate information. Let's all be honest. You read through any epistle that you want to, and you're going to go, uh, what does that mean exactly? Furthermore, you don't see current hip cultural slang thrown in or references to help us visualize a truth. Furthermore, the language is not dumbed down. In fact, we think Paul actually invented coined a couple of words himself to try to explain a biblical truth. The Bible is not a dumb book. It, it's not it's it's not it's not written at a children's at children's level. Now the children can get it But I do think that they need an awful lot of explanation to help them get it. And so do we adults. So why is it that if the apostles or the disciples of the apostles who wrote the epistles and the gospel writers use big language? John is a John is a big thinking book. That is a in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Okay, ha, 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 ha. Hold it. Slow the phone. And then he talks about the Logos, and the Word, the Logos, became flesh. 
Was he alluding, I think, to a Greek philosophical idea about wisdom, about an understanding of how the world operates? Yeah. But he was also, I think, speaking and referring back to Genesis chapter one, God speaking the world into existence for him, through him, to him. So the Bible isn't dumb. Why, oh, why do our church signs have to be so ridiculous? In fact, I would even suggest to you today, people aren't looking for dopey. They're not looking for cute. They're not looking for a fight. They are looking for hope. They are looking for comfort. They are looking for purpose. They are looking for a relationship with God. They want to understand how the world works. I think that's what people are groping for these days. Why do we want to waste a church sign putting up something that's just one eight seven seven two eight two beep? Unless, of course, Jimmy has another communion question. Hey there, Todd. Can you explain the main difference between preaching and teaching? Exhortation. Preaching has teaching. Teaching is simply downloading information. Preaching gives it some fire. It gives some it gives some command, exhortation, encouragement, comfort, all of the things that should be addressed with an expository sermon. That's what preaching is. Most people can teach in some way, shape or form. Preaching is simply a different thing. It just. If I'm a teacher, I could ask you to open up your textbook and please turn to page 132. I'm going to read that paragraph, and then I'm going to explain to you what it means. That's that's teaching, and that's a, that's a gift, by the way, and, and it, it shouldn't be downplayed. Preaching, open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11. Prepare to hear the Word of God, read and exposited. Please stand for the reading of the Word of God, which, by the way, we get from Nehemiah chapter 8. Eight. Fascinating chapter. The Jews are coming back in waves. The Jews are, are returning and they've discovered the book of the laws of Moses and the people asked to hear it read. So there's a great assembly. There's a platform and a wooden podium that are built. And, the, and, and they read the books of Moses. But I believe it was the Levites. Verse six, seven, eight, somewhere in that hood. That explained it to them. Uh, definitely verse 8. They unpacked it. They explained it to them. What were they doing? They were expositing the Bible. That's where we get it. And interestingly, we see a little detail. They hear the word of the law being read. They hear it exposited, explained for them. And what is the response? They hit the dirt. They fall to their knees with faces to the ground and worship God. That is one of the clearest demonstrations that preaching affects worship. The two are interconnected. Low preaching, lousy worship. You see that, don't you? I mean, seriously, have you ever heard of a guy preaching the word? Man, he's just like Steve Lawson expositor. And and then the the the, the music is, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Sounds like a child's rhyme. The music is usually informed by the preaching. The higher the view of God, the higher the worship. That's the difference between preaching and teaching. <laughs> Beep talk, one 282 Beep. Question about the word brother. 
I hold that word very tightly, as in I would call Todd a brother in Christ. However, I work with a lot of people who are uh, Muslim, Masons, agnostics, etc. And we use the term regularly to refer to each other since we are brothers in arms. So, is it a sin to refer to someone that I work with as a brother? But can I also use the term at church with a different meaning? Maybe like a capital B and a small b, brother? <laughs> I think it's a great question, and I have to confess to you, sir, I hate your phone call because you remind me of something that I have done twice that I just go, what was I? And I, I can't remember if the, if the fellow was a Muslim, but uh, and 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 another time I believe it was somebody who's a heretic, and I used the word brother, and I went, "Oh, brother," which is an exclamation, of course. So you got to be a small b and a capital b and a middle b somehow in there. But I was like, "Ah, I shouldn't use that term to give them the impression that we are in fellowship with one another." So if you believe that the word brother has that implication. Context might make a difference. If you're in a religious setting, I think you should be careful. If you're dealing with, you know, hey, brother, I, I wouldn't make a law out of it, but I do think that we should try to be mindful of it and not lead anybody astray, confuse them into thinking that we're actually in fellowship when we're not. I was so blessed by what you said about the journey to heaven. When my husband died of lung cancer, we were standing face to face in our bedroom. I was trying to steady him to get him into bed. And for one moment, he took his eyes off of me, looked ahead over my shoulder. And all I could say is, I really believe that he saw the Jesus that he adored all of his life. When you said that, it just touched my heart. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry for your loss. I just don't know about you, but don't the pains of people get heavier as the years go by and the, and the loss? Because as you're getting older, you're increasingly understanding priorities, husband and wife, family sitting around a table, fellowship with the saints, going to church. That's the stuff. It, it's none of the shebangery that the world says you're supposed to find satisfaction in. And so when you see those relationships jarred or broken, not functioning the way that God would would ultimately have them, uh, it just gets uh, heavy. And when somebody loses a spouse, our hearts should indeed mourn with those who mourn. Did your husband see the Lord as he was taking his life and bringing him to heaven? I, I can't I can't say that he did. I, I don't know that I would say he didn't. I believe where this, this lady is getting that from is because I said it's my opinion that when you cross over from life to death, it's Jesus who's going to take you there. I'm speculating. I don't know for a fact. But I believe the one who conquered death is going to lead us through death. And I believe I said something like he's going to take you by the hand, dear saint. He's going to grab it firmly. He's going to hold on to you. You're not going to hold on to him. And he's going to comfort you by telling you, I've already defeated death. I've been through it myself. And I know the way to the Father. He's expecting you. Can I say that's the way it works definitively? No, I can't. Does it sound like our Jesus? It most certainly does. Until tomorrow, go serve your king.